Well, good morning. I've been thinking for five or six days about what I'm going to say when I get up here for the first time with us having an in-person service. And I didn't practice anything. I didn't rehearse anything. And I didn't really get any idea of what I wanted to say until this morning. And that basically comes down to this, which is I really love this church. I really love all of you in this room. I love all of you who are watching on Facebook Live. And I really love this church in terms of the place, the building, the property. Just being here in this place means the world to me. And the fact that the two things I love most about Prairie View, the people and the place, the fact that these two things are finally starting to maybe come together a little bit for the first time in 11 weeks brings me a lot of joy. And we are not out of the woods yet. We still have a long way to go. We're still socially distancing. We're still wearing masks. The coronavirus is still out there. Now is not the time for us to get cocky and let our guard down. But it's incredibly encouraging to have even this small semblance of return to normalcy, of actually being able to worship physically together at Prairie View. And for all those people watching at home, uh, we certainly hope and pray that when you are capable, when you are comfortable of coming here and worshiping with us, that you will do that. But we certainly hope that this is a good way of serving you through video better than what we've been doing the past 11 weeks. Now, one thing, as we took communion just a moment ago, you may have seen the black boxes sitting on those tables. Those are for your offering. Uh, If you have an offering to give this morning, we would greatly appreciate your generosity. Feel free to put those offerings in those black boxes before you leave this morning. And as Rick said, we are incredibly grateful for those people who have mailed in offerings as well. We're grateful for your generosity, and we ask that that would continue so that we can continue doing ministry here, especially as we start to get our feet wet with what ministry will now look like. But with that, that's enough pleasantries for one Sunday. I will say this. I've said this to several people. You all look a lot better in masks. So now that I've got my sarcasm out of the way, we'll begin our sermon. Well, around the 9th century B.C., not all was well among God's people. The great King David was long gone. He had been an exceptional ruler over Israel at one time, for a long time, leading them to a level of power, wealth, stability, and influence that they had never known before. But King David was not perfect. He committed his most infamous sin with a woman named Bathsheba getting her pregnant while her husband was away at war, fighting on his behalf, and then David ultimately had him killed. Following that sin, David had to deal with insurrection and wickedness within his own family. And then finally, as one of his final acts as king, David took an ill-fated census of his people that brought about God's judgment. Again, David was a great king in many ways. But he was not perfect. And his sins would have consequences that would last generations. David's son Solomon was a great king in his own right. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel's prosperity continued to grow by leaps and bounds. Solomon was known for his incredible wisdom around the world. And Solomon built the first permanent temple in Jerusalem, the crown jewel of the city of God. But like David, his father, Solomon sinned as well. 
He married foreign women and worshipped foreign gods. The problem with marrying those women was not that they were foreign. There are many righteous, godly foreign women in the Bible, non-Jewish women. The problem was that they did not worship the one true God. And like David, Solomon goes out with a whimper in 1 Kings chapter 11. And like David, the ripple effect of Solomon's sin was not truly felt until after he died. Once Solomon was gone, chaos ruled in Israel. The kingdom was divided, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Solomon's son Rehoboam reigned in the south. An upstart revolutionary former servant of Solomon named Jeroboam reigns in the north. That can be a little confusing, but you had Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. But in addition to having similar names, both men were wicked. Both men worshipped false gods. And war between these two kingdoms became commonplace. The numerous numerous kings who followed Rehoboam and Jeroboam, more often than not, were just as wicked as they were. Now, at this point, God's people were still materially wealthy. They were still politically successful. They were still riding on David and Solomon's coattails in that regard. But they were spiritually and morally bankrupt, having almost entirely abandoned the one true God. Maybe the prophet Samuel was on to something when he warned the Israelites generations earlier not to seek an earthly king. But then just when you thought things couldn't get any worse in Israel, along comes King Ahab. Ahab raises or maybe more accurately, lowers the bar for evil kings by his example. To get just a brief introduction to Ahab, you can read 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Asa being one of the few decent kings at the time, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Baal being arguably the most prominent false god In the entire Old Testament. Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, another tool of idol worship. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, would go on to become one of the Bible's greatest villains. We'll read more about her in the weeks ahead. Meanwhile, Ahab was loyal to Baal, that false god the one closely associated with child sacrifice. So to say that not all was well among God's people at this time 
is putting it lightly. This period is arguably one of the lowest points in the entire history of Israel. And at a time like this, you know what Israel could really use? A good prophet. Someone unique from everyone around him in his day and age. Someone uniquely called by God when everyone around has abandoned God. Someone uniquely close to God when everyone around has strayed from God. Someone uniquely understanding of God when nobody around knows God at all and really has no desire to know God. At a time like this, Israel needed a prophet. Someone like, let's say, Elijah. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. We encourage you to follow along, whether you're here or at home. We'll even have all our verses up on the screen if you don't feel comfortable touching a strange, potentially infected Bible. So with that, as you open up to 1 Kings 17, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together, even if it's not what we imagine, even if it's not the wonderful, joyous celebration of everything being back exactly the way it was before, even though not all of us can be here. Thank you that some of us can be here. Thank you that we can use technology to create a deeper sense of connection, uh, even if we're not all in the same room. And Lord, thank you that We have these precautions in place that while they might seem overbearing, they might seem over the top. Some might even say they're unnecessary. Lord, thank you for the resources that we have to take these precautions. And I pray that we would find the right balance between cowering in fear for the rest of time, but also not living recklessly or irresponsibly. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take these precautions and bless our efforts in worshiping, but doing so in a way that is safe for those who are here. And Lord, ultimately, we pray for your protection. We recognize that even with all the hand sanitizer in the world, with all the masks in the world, with six feet or eight feet or 10 feet or 12 feet between us, there is risk to coming together. And so, Lord, we ask for your protection. We don't ask it in an arrogant or entitled way of expecting you to bail us out for our own lack of discernment, but we simply ask it for our good, that you and your grace and in your kindness and your mercy would protect this church from any illness. And Lord, I pray for those at home as well. I pray that they would be able to gather with us sooner rather than later, and I pray that we would serve them well, even as they can't be here in the room. And ultimately, everything we do here this morning, I pray it would honor you, that it would glorify you. So much thought and prayer and discussion and debate has gone into how to do this and when to do this. And there are so many things that could have been different, so many decisions that could have been made either way. But we're here now. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be honored through what we do here today and in the weeks ahead. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we go any further, what exactly is a prophet. Now, we may have some preconceived notions or caricatures of prophets in our heads. We imagine a prophet as the hysteric who goes around screaming about the sky falling, the fanatic who could probably use a vacation, 
Or the fortune teller making intentionally vague predictions so that they can't be proven wrong. But a biblical prophet is none of these things. A biblical prophet is not a paranoid hysteric. It's not an unhinged fanatic. It's not a wannabe fortune teller. A biblical prophet is a spokesman for God, exposing the people's sin and calling them to repentance. The prophet acts as a middleman of sorts, mediating between holy God and sinful people. And yes, the prophet is often a miracle worker. This is especially true of Elijah. And yes, a prophet does often predict future events. But that's not the prophet's main job. A biblical prophet may do some or all of these things at one time or another. But in just the single chapter that we read today, Elijah does all of them. 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That tells you something about the despair in the land at this time, that this widow would take that step. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring me my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. 
And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And Elijah cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, why have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. To be totally honest, we don't know a whole lot about Elijah's background. We don't have the detailed or dramatic account of his calling from God the way we do for some other biblical prophets. We know next to nothing about Elijah's hometown in Gilead. But we do know what his name means. Elijah can be translated, my God is Yah. Yah being short for the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. That alone makes Elijah stick out in his day and age. Elijah's God is the one true God. At a time when everyone around him seems to worship every other so-called God. So Elijah just bursts onto the scene without much of an introduction at all. But as we read at 1 Kings 17, any doubts about Elijah's prophetic qualifications are quickly put to rest. He immediately does all the things that legitimate biblical prophets are called to do. He speaks on God's behalf to God's people. More specifically, he speaks directly to King Ahab himself. Elijah pronounces judgment on God's people. That judgment takes the form of a devastating drought that would end up lasting some three and a half years. In announcing that drought, Elijah is, in a way, predicting the future. Another hallmark of a biblical prophet. Implicit within that pronouncement of judgment is the call to repentance. Another one of the prophet's job. The judgment is God's way of punishing his people for their sin but also drawing them back to worship and dependence upon him. And finally, we see Elijah work miracles. He miraculously feeds that widow and her son and then raises that same little boy from the dead. The chapter closes with the widow announcing what 1 Kings 17 has made abundantly clear, that Elijah is a man of God and the word of the Lord in his mouth is truth. In short, Elijah really is a prophet. He checks off all the prerequisites. And as we continue reading, we're going to see Elijah's prophetic credentials continue to be established. So to recap where we are, we have our situation. Chaos and wickedness reign supreme in Israel. God's people are thoroughly, morally, spiritually bankrupt. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel are exhibit A of the rampant sin in Israel. But while the corruption may start at the top, 
It's not limited to the top. We also have our prophet, Elijah, the man of God. One author describes Elijah as the grandest, most romantic figure that Israel ever produced. We'll see why in the weeks ahead. But there's no denying that he's uniquely called by God. He's uniquely close to God. He's uniquely understanding of God. And he's uniquely equipped by God to do all the things a good prophet does. Now, that's just a brief introduction to Elijah. We'll read more about his more famous accomplishments over the next few weeks. But what does the story of Elijah have to tell believers today? Well, just for today, I'd encourage you to consider not just Elijah, but consider Elijah next to Jesus Christ. As we just mentioned, Elijah is one of the most charismatic, even fiery figures in all of Scripture. Literal fire plays a prominent role in many of Elijah's most memorable appearances. But as fascinating, as inspiring, and even as amazing as Elijah is in these stories, Jesus Christ is far greater. Jesus is the perfect, ultimate, eternal prophet. Now, again, Elijah was a darn good prophet. But Jesus is the prophet. Think of the two next to each other. We read that Elijah was cared for by God in the wilderness in verses 4 through 6. That the ravens fed him. Well, so was Jesus in Matthew 4. But in Jesus' case, it was after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. On top of that, in Jesus' case, it was after he overcame the temptation of Satan himself in that wilderness. As great as Elijah is, that's something he can't claim to have done. Elijah performs miracles. Well, so does Jesus throughout his ministry. And the miracles that Jesus performs are even greater. Elijah miraculously fed that widow and her son. Not bad, but Jesus miraculously feeds thousands. Elijah raised a little boy from the dead. Jesus raises multiple people from the dead, dies on the cross for our sins, and then rises from the dead himself. Point, Jesus. Elijah is a man of God. After reading 1 Kings 17, there is no doubt about that. But Jesus is fully man and fully God himself. When Elijah prayed to raise that widow's son in 1 Kings 17, it appears that he even gets frustrated with God as he's doing it. Elijah just couldn't understand why God would do something like this. But Jesus, he's the fullness of God in human flesh. He never gets frustrated with the Father's will because Jesus' will and the Father's will are one. Again, Elijah was a great prophet. You can never take that away from him. But at Jesus' transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, when Elijah stands next to Jesus, it's Jesus' glory, not Elijah's, that leaves the disciples breathless.
In this time of chaos, evil, and instability in Israel's history, they didn't need another earthly king. After all, earthly kings were often the source of the problems. They needed a prophet sent from God. And at the right time, God sent the right man, the prophet Elijah. He would speak on God's behalf, confront the sins of even the most powerful in the land, pronounce judgment, issue calls to repentance, expose the other so-called gods as frauds, perform miracles, and even predict the future. Now, would Ahab listen? Would Jezebel listen? Would Israel listen? We'll have to wait and see. But it's not just in 1 Kings 17 that chaos, evil, and instability appear to reign supreme over the world. It's not just in 1 Kings 17 that we have problems of corruption and sin and injustice and violence from the lowest in society to the highest in society. Really, ever since humanity fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, this has been the case. And if you didn't believe that, maybe the past few months, the past few weeks, or the past few days have convinced you a little bit more. And as the history of Israel tells us, even the best earthly kings cannot finally address the problem of sin. Even the most qualified and gifted human prophets can't totally eradicate the problem of sin. For that, we need more than an earthly king. For that, we need more than a good prophet. To ultimately address the problem of sin, we need a savior, a redeemer, and a lord. And at the right time, God sent his son to fulfill that mission. Jesus could do all the things that prophets did, but Jesus was far more than a prophet. Jesus was also the priest that sinners need, the one who offered up his own body and blood on our behalf to atone for our sin. Jesus was and still is the king that we need, divine, righteous, and just, unlike all the other kings before him. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. He is the true, eternal, perfect man of God because he is man and God. So by God's grace, may we hear his voice, may we obey his call and worship him. Jesus did not come just to expose our sin and call us to repent of it. He came to take it upon himself and become the very means of our salvation in order that we might be reconciled to God by faith. Prophets are great. Elijah was great. But Jesus is far better. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this time that we have to worship you, whether it's through technology, whether it's here in person. I pray that our worship is honoring to you. Lord, we ask that you watch over us in the rest of our service, the few minutes that we have left. Thank you for this new phase of worship that we get to enter into. I pray it's not just more beneficial for us and more helpful for us, but that it's honoring to you. Thank you that Christ came better than just a prophet, better than the kings who came before him. 
better than the priests who couldn't really truly atone for our sins. But thank you that Christ is the perfect, sufficient prophet, priest, and king. Thank you that Christ is Lord. And Lord, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.